time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. This is God's word. You may be seated. morning. How are you guys this morning? Good. Good. I'm glad. I hope that's real. <laughs> Man, I'm glad. I, really, I believe you. I believe you, brother. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Summit, and um, we are glad that you are here today. Um, quick announcement. If this is your first time and you'd like some more information, if you see a, a green card either in your seats or uh, at the communion table, if you fill that out and just put <clears throat> there. If you'll just put your email on there, I'd love to get in touch with you and have coffee or tea or lunch or breakfast or something like that and just tell you what God's doing here, uh, just to let you know. Um, two quick announcements. Uh, if we can get the, the slide up there for PAR, uh, the golf tournament is going to be September 22nd, and PAR is Prepare and Respond. It's a team that we team up with local churches that came together after the, the wake of the uh, 2011 tornadoes to be able to help any kind of disaster relief. And so we as churches come together. It's a beautiful picture uh, of what the church should be, right? And this is how we do relief. So we're gonna, we're taking, um, this is going to be the, the tournament that's just, we have every year to raise money for PAR, um, which is going to be a good segue into, so if you play golf or you know, you play at golf, which is probably a little, you know, more accurate. And you want to do that? That's great. That'll be at Robert Trent Jones, uh, golf course on September 22nd. Um, so what PAR is going to do, given the timeliness of this, is, um, we have a hurricane response that PAR is going to be, if you want to be a part of a team that goes, uh, we've got three t- trips that are already set up. The, uh, the 10th through the 15th, the 17th through the 23rd, and the 24th through the 30th. Those were for Harvey originally. As you know, Irma hit the coast of Florida about an hour ago. I have friends that are all through there and pastors that I know that are all through there. Um, so we may take some of those trips, maybe the last one, and redesignate where we go. Uh, the time frames will stay the same. So if you're interested in that, um, you can just Summit Crossing backslash Harvey. Um, you can talk with Ronald, who's running slides with us tonight, uh, or, or just grab me for more information uh, about that, just so that you'll know that that's what's um, kind of on, uh, on the brink for the next few weeks. We'll, we'll kind of keep this up, and I'm getting updates from, my, uh, from pastors that are down there. Um, all right, so 
we usually go through books of the Bible, and when I say usually, I mean like most, 98% of the time, right? Uh, so we've been following Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Joseph. And I, and I hope that you're seeing the relevance, the, uh, the connectedness, right, to Jesus and, and the need for the gospel as we go, even from the Old Testament, right? And so our hope in this series is that you'll not just hear stories that you may be familiar with, again, so that you have a good reinforcement or it'll boost your morality, right? Uh, it's our hope that you'll see your need for Jesus uh, in the everyday, that every character in the book of Genesis blew it at some point. And that God intervenes, that we need his grace, we need him to come into our lives, that in his kindness, he loves to hear prayers that abandon everything from the world and with outstretched arms run toward him and surrender. And we say, I've got nothing but you. That, that's what, you are my only hope. That's what I hope that we're hearing and seeing in these stories, that, that there is a need to call sin, sin. Not to excuse it or, or to justify it, but to say, this is what it is. Let's turn away from it. Let, let's repent. That's what, that's what the church needs to regain is their first love in Jesus, right? A, a deep longing for the reality of who Jesus is, his presence, and to reject anything less than that, even though it may look good on the, on the surface. And so I hope, I hope that your heart is stirred within you, that these verses long you to follow after Jesus, to know Jesus more, because the result will be authentic worship, the result will be enthusiastic service, and the result will be loving community, which is what the church is supposed to be. So we don't have to design programs to be that because we love Jesus. We find that's what's happening. It's a reaction, and our job is just kind of organize it. Let's see what God is doing, and then come along and, and say, hey, let's do this, let's do this. This is where he's showing us, right? So when Jesus is the center, we don't have to work so hard at that. It's a reaction. When the church looks at Jesus, when the church worships Jesus, they look more like him. And that's our hope. Today we're in Genesis 39. Uh, we're going to have it on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, go on and turn there. We're going to jump around a little bit. Um, and there's also there's some Bibles on the floors, either uh, under you or in front of you, uh, if you want to follow there as well. If you were here last week, you'll notice a big difference between chapter 38 and chapter 39. A huge difference. Um, no one was really the hero last week. If you remember Judah and Tamar, um, nobody was like, I want to be like that, right? You don't tell your children, hey, everybody, be like Judah. No, nobody says that, not one person. And so it can't be teaching morality. And in fact, that story of Judah and Tamar felt so out of place. Joel did a great job, by the way. It felt so out of place in that, in that narrative. I mean, it's stuck between Joseph being thrown in the pit then we have that chapter, and then we have Joseph going to Potiphar's house. I'm like, what's, what's going on with that? And we learned about Judah. We learned about his repentance from his abusing his power and authority over the weak and the marginalized. We watched his transformation, right, into a new person through the kindness of God, who is now willing, Judah is now willing to sacrifice himself for the weak and the marginalized instead of deposing them and getting them out of his way. And so here's the short version from last week. People can change. That's the short version. It's possible. All oh, people can't change. Yes, they can. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be changed. You can change. I've seen it. We read about it in the Bible. We know that it's true. I'm changed. I'm a different person. That's the reason I'm here today. If I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't do it. And so today, 
I think we're starting to see as we get into the end part of Genesis, we see how the beauty, the beauty of how the stories start to intertwine. They're not just simply stories in a silo. They don't just stand alone by themselves. They're not just stories to teach us how to be good, to be like Joseph or to be like Abraham. They point us to Jesus. They point us to how we need him. And there's such richness in these Joseph passages. I I struggle with how to cut it down (laughs) and then say, oh, here's the, here's the point this week. It's hard. And so we see this huge contrast from Judah's sexual immorality and abuse of power this week with Joseph's purity. And we pick up with Joseph. So where does the story start? He starts with Joseph recently being pulled out of a pit. He was thrown into by his brothers. He was sold as a slave. He was tied to a wagon with traders, and they were on their way to Egypt. He's without any support of his family. He's thought to be dead by his father. He's taken to another land. He's not in his home. He's without any hope, and he's got plenty of reasons to hate. Right? Wouldn't you? He was stripped of his special robe. He was pleaded for his life. He was sold anyway. He went from being a naive, talkative 17-year-old with all the answers and a bright future to be seemingly abandoned by God and everyone else. That's where we find Joseph today. So three points. Number one is the temptation. Number two is going to be transformation. Number three is going to be living in the tension to deal with real life. We try to stay and keep it real and not just up here. We know we have to live. We have to walk through this, right? So temptation, transformation, living in the tension. So Potiphar, Potiphar is um, high up in Pharaoh's army. And it's not just uh, kind of a chief of the guard, but he is over uh, like an Egyptian army, right? And we see that Potiphar bought Joseph, and the Lord was with him, verse 2 says, and then he became a successful man. So a quick side note, Joseph was not a missionary, he was not a prophet, he was not a priest, he wasn't a pastor. And yet he ends up, and he rises up in the business world essentially. you got to think, he's almost like running a corporation with the houses. Don't think houses like, like we have. All right, well, these are huge thing undertakings that he's doing. And, and, and he's basically rising up in the business world. And, and you have influence where God has put you now, wherever you are, whether that's in school, in junior high or high school, whether, whether you're at, at the business or in the home. Like God has put you where you are on purpose. Do not discount that. You don't have to run a ministry. You don't have to sing on stage or, or, or give sermons to affect people. You know that. I just want to keep reminding you of that, that God uses you in every sphere of life. And Joseph ended up being the biggest catalyst for the people of God, and he did it through running a hunger relief program by the end of the the book of Genesis, right? Hunger relief, I'm like, this is how God used him. So Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of everything, and God blesses the Egyptian's house, that's the Bible's language, the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph which sounds a little bit like Genesis 12, if you remember the promise, that God's going to bless those who bless you. He blessed Joseph, and then God blesses his house, the Egyptian's house, for the sake of Joseph. Everything seemed to be going well, finally. Thank goodness, because Joseph's in a pit. He's been left for dead. He's been sold by his family. And now he's in Potiphar's house. He's doing a little better. But Joseph, the Bible says, was handsome in appearance. And then he says, Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on him and said, lie with me, which is a two-word command in the, in the Hebrew, which basically 
It's a command. It's not a suggestion. And remember, she's in power over him, right? It's a command, not a suggestion. It's basically, she's saying, bed now is what that means. It was less about attraction and it was more about power. She had authority over it. She saw something she wanted and being in a position of power, she wanted, she knows she could get it. But Joseph refused. And she didn't give up and she kept coming to him and he would refuse her day after day. Now in our day, that's sexual harassment, work, workplace harassment. Joseph doesn't have an HR to appeal to, right? He just, there's no department there and there's no means. He's just a servant when it comes to this. And so one day while she was in the home and there was nobody else there, she approached Joseph again, grabbed his clothes, and it must have been different. Joseph must have realized, I can't just say no. I can't just give an explanation this time of why. And he just took off. Like Paul in 1 Corinthians says, flee immorality. This is kind of the picture of what Paul's talking about. He just, he just fled. He just took off. She realizes she can't get what she wants. And instead, she weaves a plan to punish Joseph. If you can't have, if I can't have him, nobody can, kind of thing. And she cries out and she tells the people in the home that, that Joseph tried to lie with her and that he was the one that, that was doing all of this stuff. Like that she and her innocence cried out to be saved. And then her husband came home and she tells him the same story, except she adds in a line. She says, the servant whom you have brought against, who you have brought among us. Just to twist the knife a little bit to really get his rage ramped up. She reminded him, it's your fault. You're the one that brought him in here. And as you know, there are no trials. There are no courtrooms. There's no innocent until proven guilty. That's a luxury. And you are a servant. You are not a noble. And so Joseph just went to prison. No questions asked. Could have been killed probably for that. And we get this little note in the Bible right on the side. It says, Joseph went to prison and says, where the king's prisoners were confined. Oh, well, that's good to know. I don't think Joseph cares about that right now. That must be for us. A little note that the story's not over yet. Verse 21, but God gave him favor with the keeper of the prison. God gave him favor with Potiphar. God gave him favor now with the keeper of the prison and put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners and says, and the Lord was with him. In prison. That's interesting. So many of us know this story. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you've been in church, if you haven't been in church, this is a great story to hear. We need this story. If you have been in church, it may be so familiar that you may miss the power that's in the story. So don't do that. Ask God to give you a new lens today. Um, if you heard it growing up in youth group like I did, the whole point of the story was to be like Joseph and not have sex outside of marriage. Right? That's not wrong. It's just very limited. It's not what the Bible's trying to teach. It's not the overarching picture. It is true. And it is of God that that's, that's a true thing. So don't hear that that's wrong. It's right. But it's not the primary teaching. This is another piece of Joseph's transformation. This is another piece of the story showing that Israel, God is with you. In the good times and in the bad, whether in prosperity or in adversity, God is with you no matter what you are experiencing, right? That's the overall kind of picture that's going on here. So in this story, do you feel the injustice? Do you, 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 need, you need to feel that in the way that Joseph's treated. He, he hadn't done anything wrong. 
And he recovered. I mean, he's thrown into a pit. He's left by his family. He's sold. Don't care a thing about him. He's starting to recover somewhat in Potiphar's house. And we don't balk at that at all. Well, God, that's good because he deserved it. It's kind of what we kind of feel. Boy, it's time that he got something good to happen to him. And, and we don't balk at all at God giving him favor in Potiphar's house. And we think that's fitting. He's been through a lot. Maybe things will turn out okay for, for Joseph. He's done nothing wrong. And, and now he's rejecting evil from Potiphar's wife. And he follows God. And what does he do? He ends up in prison. Well, that's not fair. The Bible doesn't make that argument. <laughs> it doesn't talk about anything being fair. Where is God? Do you feel that? You should. You should feel that sense of injustice. And there's more than sexual temptation in this story. So I just want to look at three. So we're going to look at temptation first, and then we're going to tackle the bigger picture. Number one, we see that uh, in temptation, number one, uh, Joseph has a, has a relationship with God. We can... We could tell that clearly. He's faced with sexual temptation from Potiphar's wife, and his response is to flee. Question, why? Why not give in? Who's going to know? His family? His mom? Nope. Integrity is who you are when nobody's looking. You know that one? You know that story? Who will know? Who's it going to hurt? What's he going to do? Ruin his reputation? He's a servant. He has nothing to ruin. And in fact, this wasn't really abnormal in this culture. It was pretty normative. He's lost everything. No family. He's out of his country. He may even strengthen his employability with a good report. But he flees. How's he making his choices? Good question. Number two, another temptation. Another temptation in this story is anger that turns into a desire for revenge. Do you see that? How it can progress past anger to a desire for personal justice. Uh, you can see how that would happen. I mean, he just came out of a, a terrible situation with his brothers. He's finally worked hard and earned the trust of a new master, which he's not used to being a servant because he was pretty high up in his house and was going to take over the whole thing. If you remember that, he had the robe, the royal robe. He's over the whole house, which is run like a kind of like a business, and, and he resists temptation to sexual sin, and he's repaid by being thrown in prison. And it's not a low security area. Psalm 105, verse 18, you can put that up there, Ronald, says uh, very clearly that his feet were hurt in fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said come to pass and the word of the Lord tested him. He was talking about Joseph in Psalm 105. So can you see his reaction in the prison being, Seriously? My brothers throw me away. I finally claw my way back. And now this, I did everything right. How dare you do this to me? Now, m many of us, because of the way we grew up, we wouldn't say that. We would feel that because we know it's not right to say that out loud, but we would feel it in our hearts. Is that an honest look of what might have happened? We don't see that recorded. Not once do we hear about the revenge of Joseph. 
We just don't hear it. He's silent. Final temptation that we talk about today, and I believe the mo- is the most dangerous one in the story. And it's a temptation to despair. He ends up in prison, which is worse than being a servant. He hasn't done anything wrong. He was misrepresented. He was powerless to do anything about it, to speak up against it. He's innocent, and he's taken the punishment for somebody else's sin. And the thought process for me and probably many of us might be, I've resisted all these temptations. My life still keeps getting worse. I've worked as hard as I know, and life still goes bad with only this tease of improvement, and then the bottom just drops out again. Now that is a dangerous way of thinking. It leads to despair. Despair says, I've lost hope. I've given up. There's no fight in me. What's the use? Why bother? Even when I give all I have, it doesn't work. I still end up in the same place. It's a mixture, a mingling of cynicism and disappointment. And it's dangerous because it becomes a way of life. It becomes our expectation. And it becomes not just a decision or a mistake, but a lifestyle. Number two, transformation. So what happens with these temptations? What do we do? Those are some problems that Joseph is facing. How did he show self-control? How does he resist? What's the bigger point of the story, Jamie? Here, Before we do that, here are two wrong ways to deal with temptation that have not served me well. (laughs) Hopefully it will serve you well. Number one, wrong way to deal with temptation, willpower. This is not teaching you, the story is not teaching you to try harder, to stop sinning, to white knuckle your way into holiness. Oh, I just won't think about it. I won't think about it, won't think about it, won't think about it, won't think about it. I don't think that's what Joseph was doing. It doesn't work. It works for a little while, but not long. Use positive thinking until the temptation is gone. This is a sad picture of Christianity because what you're trying to do is discipline yourself. If I could just think the right way, then I will have the desired outcome. And maybe on the outside you will. But it doesn't really get to the heart of what's going on. So number one, willpower is really not the answer. It's not what the Bible tells us is how to deal with temptation. Number two, sin checking sin. Another way to say that would be use one sin to stop another sin. Jamie, that's confusing. Oh, it won't be. Just give me a second. When I was a teenager, see, there was no internet. There were no iPhones. If you wanted to look at pornography, you know what you had to do? You had to go into a gas station, look at somebody in the face, give them money, and say, could you give me something that I'm not supposed to have so that I can mess myself up? That was the interchange that had to happen for you get pornography. You couldn't just download it on your phone and nobody ever know about it because you know the buffers and the things, you know, all the stuff to do because you've downloaded all that too and YouTubed it, right? This, you had to have an interaction with somebody. So I never did that. Why? Pride. I didn't have the guts to look at somebody and tell them I want to sin like this. And so it checked me, right? Was I a virtuous teenager because I never did that? Nope. Not at all. If I could have in secret, I would have. Because my heart loved something it thought desperately. My heart checked that fear and shame were leading me, not Jesus. And so that's the, that's the, 
the misunderstanding of Christianity. We think, oh, you know, well, if I, I've got to stop doing this and not doing this and I can't enjoy this and I can't go do this. Why? Because I'm a Christian. You're missing the point of Christianity. You're missing that Jesus is, is a pearl of great price and that he's a treasure in a field and that he's to be loved and treasured more. You haven't really tasted him because you're thinking that's better. I didn't get that as a teenager. I didn't understand that. So I, I had one sin, check, another sin. Now, am I upset about that? Nope. I'm not upset about it because I'm glad I didn't do that. It gets in your head, right? But that, that's not what we're seeing from Joseph. That's not what God wants us to do to confront sin in our lives. Each one of those leads to, to more sin. Honestly, uh, either you don't look and you're, you're, you're self-righteous, or you do look and you deal with lust. I mean, either way, you lose because it's not about Jesus. It's about you fixing yourself. And Jesus doesn't even enter the picture at all. So what is the right way? How do, how does Joseph, how do we deal with that? How do we come, overcome temptation? And the bigger point in the story is going to be a key. God is with us when things are good and when things are bad. Joseph says something interesting that kind of clues us in in verse 9. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's interesting, don't you think? Is that a remarkable statement? That he is aware that God is with him and that sin is not primarily against Potiphar's wife, although it is, but it's primarily against God. That's who he addresses. How can I do this wickedness and sin against God? That's remarkable to me. That means there's something going on in his heart that's different than it was when he had his robe taken from him just recently. God is at the center of his decisions, not himself. And the beauty and, and the power of God outshone the allure of sin for him. There was something more valuable. And so he's not trying to, to leverage his decisions for his status in the workplace or for his reputation. He's living in obedience to God out of love for God. And we don't typically think like that. I don't typically just think, I didn't think, typically think like that. We're only thinking about sinning against a person or hurting somebody else, not that it extends to a holy God. That there's no such thing as privatized sin. Nobody may know about it, but it affects everything we do. And self-control or resisting temptation it doesn't come from willpower. It doesn't come from suppressing your heart or pushing things down. It comes from the desires of the heart being reordered by a passionate desire for what is supreme. Said another way, um, a superior love that expels or rejects lesser loves. Picture that would be uh, before I was married, I had several friends that were female, Right? And we would hang out, and, and I enjoyed being with them in different ways. In college, you just kind of hang out with people or whatever, you know. When I fell for my wife, any feelings I had for those ladies that I was maybe fond of just melted away. I, they weren't, it wasn't there anymore because I was captured with a new affection. It was my wife. The other other fondnesses or, or, 
or, or any, anything that I had had before. It was expelled by the superior love that I had for Missy. You see how that works. Because the issue is it's not so much about resisting temptation as it is loving Jesus more than loving sin. We don't love Jesus enough. And so it's a love problem. It's not a sin problem. You can only do that if you've really seen Jesus, if you've tasted and seen that he is good, like the Psalms tell us. And if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus on mission, goes into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, invites kids over on the ball fields, if that's the way we're going to be on mission, we can't just study it. We have to live it. We have to be a part of it. It can't just be a mental mechanical exercise that we know all the language and the words and can answer all the questions to. It has to permeate from here to here and come out in us. So whether we do it, because when we live it, it says, this is what I believe. When we say it, it does not say, this is what I believe. It says, this is what I want to believe. You see the differences. So if we're going to be a church that really loves Jesus and is following him on mission, this is how we live. And it's really simple. It's in a simple appeal. It doesn't mean we do it right all the time. It means we repent when we don't or we're open to, hey, this might not go well, Jamie. You know, elders might want to change this direction. Okay, I'm open. What's God doing? I'm not here to tell us what we're going to do. I want to, we want to hear from him. And so Jesus, here's our appeal. It's simple. I want to see you. I want to see you as real, not believing. I'm not believing that you're enough right now. I'm falling into this sin. I am wrong. I love sin more than I love you right now. Help. That's how those prayers look. Hebrews 2 verse 18. It's talking about Jesus. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus was angry without needing revenge, and he let, he got killed and let the Lord raise him. He could have come off the cross. He could have just shown up like a star and just vaporized everybody. He did not. He's shown us how to live and how to manage our emotions. Jesus was sad, but he didn't fall into despair when he lamented over Jerusalem and over Lazarus. He wept. This is a carpenter man, not a weak little dude petting a lamb that we saw growing up. Right? This is a man. The Vikings loved Christianity because the hero died well. And was worthy of worship. It's not some effeminate thing either. And yet he's tender. This is why we can't make images of God. He, he changed, he's, he's not an image. He is God. He's almighty. That's the first and two commandments. And yet I forget that. Number three, tension. Living in the tension. Jamie, that's some great advice, but that's a lot harder to do when you're in the middle of it. Absolutely. That's why there's a third point, and we'll be done. Some of those can be helpful in fighting temptation, but the main idea of the passage is that God is with Joseph, which is where the value is. All right, look at verses 2 and 3. It says that God, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was with Joseph. That's called an inclusio in Hebrew. And what it means is start of story, end of, a start of thought, end of thought. And so the beginning uh, and the ending of the story 
And it sets apart what the main point is. When things are going well and Joseph prospered, the Lord was with Joseph. And when things are going bad and he's in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. And so the story doesn't end with Joseph in prison. That's not the way they would see it. They would see it ending with the Lord being with him. Because it's not dependent on where you are as long as God is with you, is the point of what the narrator in Genesis is trying to say. That's a different way of looking at the story and one that, that is intended by the Bible, by the way that it's told. We need the story of Joseph. And this is the way you need to look at your story, your life. When we think we're doing everything right and things still go badly in our minds, our worlds crash, we need Joseph's story. But that leaves us with a tension because Joseph's Story does intersect God's bigger story, but for two years, Joseph is going to be in prison as an innocent man. How do we, how do we live when we are in what seems like an impossible situation? A hard marriage, rebellious children, a job you hate, financial ruin, cancer, a hardship that's just going to last for a while. You don't see anything that's going to change on the horizon? How about then? How are we to live? Just bare our teeth and white knuckle it and slap a smile on our face and then pretend everything is fine, like we don't have any problems? God is good. Just barely got out of the car in the parking lot with four kids and they're dragging and I think one's got a diaper full, but I am happy. Good to see you. I'm 12 minutes late, right? I use 12 minutes because that's when everybody actually is here. (laughs) Or do you pretend or do you explode on everyone around you and complain about everything and everybody's going to know every detail about why your life is actually the worst one that theirs doesn't come close? Those are the two extremes that we can respond in. And neither is a picture of Scripture and what Scripture tells us. Remember, Jesus is with us in the good and the bad. There are things that are worth crying over, and there are things that are worth saying, this hurts. doesn't excuse it. I I excuse sin in other people for the longest time, and for myself, and I would justify it. Well, they didn't really mean that. right. It still hurts, and it's okay to deal with that and to call it what it is. It goes to the cross, not to your back or somebody else's back. We're we're missing the bigness of what happened at the cross when we fail to put sin there. And Jesus did that. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus. He cared about it. It affected him. And and to not acknowledge that, to not admit hurt ourselves, is is to deny being made in the image of God. A friend told me that this is just weak. I, I agree with that. It's not being strong. It's being in denial. And so during times like this, we experience this tension between, and, and there's a gap between reality and hope. And we're stuck right here and we look at both. And the Bible tells us how to handle that. And it uses a, a method that our culture is not very good at. And I've mentioned this two times before. Today we're going to look at it. Uh, Ronald, put Psalm 13 up there. It's called a lament. Most of the Psalms are laments because the Psalms deal with real life. And so I just wanted to 
just read just a second. It's six verses. It's a short one. There are more inclusive ones. But how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is David. Things didn't go well for David. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. He made bad choices. He did great things. Sometimes you want to be like David. Most of the time you don't. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? He feels abandoned. How long must I take counsel in my own, my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's tempted with despair. Lest my enemy say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And then there's the turn. And he goes from just looking at reality to looking at hope. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We really don't know how to do that. We love Job 1 and 2, and we love Job 38 to 42. But there's a lot of chapters in between to where you're in the gap of tension in life, and you don't know how to live. And so David here starts in a dark place, and he's calling on God, and he feels abandoned, right? And they call and long and move and rise up, help, redeem them for the sake of your name, and he's clawing toward the light. Trusting that God will meet him. This is life-giving. We see the love of, of God. Now, the thing that we have that David doesn't have is we see that God is for us to the degree that he put forth his own son in Jesus. And so we are saying, Jesus, I know that you've come. And I know you've defeated sin. Help me to trust you. Help me to see you. To see the lament remembers the hope that we have as a Christian. And yet it, and it keeps us from despair, but it also holds on to the reality that this is not a good situation and it's okay to hurt right now. It's honest and hopeful at the same time. It's how we turn and wait on the Lord without having to fake anything or without having to make sure everybody knows we're miserable by constantly complaining. God never leaves his people in good times or in bad. And so here's the beauty of this story of Joseph. The beauty of the story of Joseph is that God saved Joseph not in spite of his tragedy, but through it. Right through it. God was there the whole time. He invited Joseph into suffering, and he used it for transformation. Jesus invites us into his story, and he uses it for transformation. He also uses it for what he's doing in and through his people. This is what we see Jesus do. Jesus was condemned, although he did nothing wrong. He suffered for no reason. He took punishment for the sins of another. So if you're suffering and you've read Joseph's story, do you believe that because of Jesus, God is present with you in your life like like he was in Joseph's, that he will bring beauty from ashes? Because we can't see God in our story like we can in Joseph's story. I mean, what perspective do you think Joseph had on his story? It's not ours. You think he thought, oh, man, this persecution by Potiphar's wife is for my good, as he spoke with an iron clamp around his neck? 
Or I'm going to prison. I'm so glad I'll be sold as a slave uh, because that will give me access to the king's prisoners and, and which will eventually, in a few years, get me in front of Pharaoh so that I can influence him for the future children of Israel, which will eventually bless the entire world. Just like God said to my, my grandfather, my great grandfather back in Genesis 12. I guarantee you he wasn't thinking that. No, he was faithful in a little. One step. One slow step at a time. He didn't put God in the dock. He didn't judge God because God wasn't doing it according to his will. He was just obedient because he loved God. He knew God was faithful. And he didn't try to do more than he was given. He avoided self-pity and despair by trusting the Lord. So what's your story? Are you having trouble seeing God in your life? Are there family struggles, missional community struggles, personal struggles? Because our story intersects God's bigger story just like Joseph's. Our hurts and our struggles have purpose just like Joseph's. It's not meaningless. And so I would encourage you to see your story with God as the author and not you. The hand him the pen that writes the story of your life. And when he writes it, he will be the hero which allows you to experience freedom that can resist temptation without needing willpower because he will be your greatest joy, your greatest love. You'll be transformed into a person who isn't afraid of suffering but realizes nothing more than a servant of God to produce in you an eternal weight of glory. You're not afraid of it. You don't have to hide your hurt anymore either. Because you trust in his power and his goodness. You can freely express laments. You can hurt with hope that he will make all things right, either soon or finally one day. And so I call you to trust Jesus. Get the worship team to go on and come up here, guys, if y'all are in here. We're going to pray. We got three things to respond to God's word. If you're new, just kind of hang out where you are. We're going to pray. Um, you can look on the screen. You want to pray something different? That's fine. That's great. God puts something else on your heart. Please do that. These are just three opportunities. Number one, if you've never done a lament in your life, hey, here's your first opportunity to do it one time. Call out in hope and hurt. Those go together. For God to rise up to no longer hide his face, to maybe use Psalm 13, Psalm 44, Psalm 77. Those are great at giving us words to the angst in our souls. It teaches us how to pray, how to talk to God. Jesus is the exact imprint. That's what Hebrews tells us, the face of God. So pray that he would be real to you. See, the, the, the real issue usually is that Jesus isn't real to us. Not that we don't believe in him, as he's not real to us right now. Number two, pray that our hearts would break for what breaks God's heart. Whether that's sin in your life and another, we, we call sin, sin. We, we re- turn away from it. We repent. So we just pray that, that the church would shed any self-sufficiency, turn and cry out for the living God to move in his people. We just want to see God move. We're tired of walking through stuff and, and talking about it. We want to learn how to live it. And then say, hey, I don't know how to do this. Great. Pray. What do we do? How are you going to move us, Lord? 
How are you going to change this? We can't do it. And then finally, we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters and those who are not yet believers. That includes everybody. In the path of, of course, Harvey and friends in Houston, they're still in the aftermath and cleanup that we've given money to, that we're going to send teams to. And now Irma hit this morning. I had a friend on Facebook Live this morning at 7 o'clock in Miami. I'm like, what are you doing there? It's west of us. Okay. We're going to pray for you. So let's pray for them. And then pray that people would be finding their hearts if they're able to go down there and help maybe in a couple weeks and help clean up. So let's just spend two or three minutes praying. Um, If you're still praying, when I start praying, just keep praying. Don't worry about that. I'm going to close us in prayer. Let us know we're getting into taking the Lord's Supper, and I'll take it from there. So two or three minutes that you just kind of pray where you are, or just be silent. Father, may we not be a church that is about us, about what our preferences are and what we'd like and the way we'd like to see this go. And God, would you take care of that? Would you help dismantle our kingdom in a gentle way? Would you turn our hearts towards you? Would you help our hearts to break for things that bother you, for sin that we can't even see that's in and of ourselves? remove the planks that are in our own eye, God, so that we move from studying and and knowing more to living that out. And and, and you gently just guide us in how to do that, how to love the marginalized and the weak, how how to to, to think of, of others, how to be oaks of righteousness that have roots that go deep so that when storms come, we're not just pushed over. We're mature. We love you so much. We're able to resist sin, that we don't lose every battle, that you're changing us, you're transforming us, that there is evidence of the Holy Spirit that is in us. God, you've got to do that. We can't teach a class. We can't read enough books. We can't self-actualize. We can't self-will hard enough to change our hearts. They are the only... You've got to do that. You know that. We're just confessing it. So would you move? Would you come? Our worship is going to be powerless. It's going to be worthless unless you inhabit it. Unless you are here, there's no reason for us to come. And so we just say, I, we agree. So would you come? Would we see your beauty, your majesty, your splendor? Would, be, would we be awed by you now in the 21st century? 
I want to have a heart like the guys did in this book. We all do. Help us. Remove our blinders. The way that we've lulled ourselves to sleep with comfort and riches. I'm so part of that. So would you move? Help us to lament well. It doesn't mean we're sad all the time, Lord. I've been happier since I've learned to lament than I have in years. I can call things what they are. Thank you. You're so good. In your name we pray. Guys, if this is your first time here, we take the Lord's Supper each week because we love it. And I hope you hear the gospel because it's there in the music. It's on purpose. And I hope you hear the gospel in the the preaching because it's on purpose and in their prayer. And you can't miss it at the table. It's Jesus' sermon. And he left that for the church. It's one of the two things that the universal church has in common. And so it's his body represented by bread and it's his blood represented by juice that if you're a Christian, it's for you. Whether you go to church or not. We're part of the universal church. We want the church to do well. And so there are three tables in the back. There are two up here. And we take bread and we take juice. And it may look something like this. As you lead your family, you may come by yourself or with your family or with a friend. And you just give thanks or you repent. God, I'm not living like I need to. And you just pray. I want to. I don't even know how to do that. I don't know how to pray well. But thank you that you sacrificed yourself for me and for my family, for my friends, for your city. Thank you that you care about us not enough to not let us be left alone and just let us go that you chase after us help us to do the same with others just pray something simple like that and we do that and we gather all around in here and you can stay while they're singing or you can come back and sing there's just freedom to respond to the Lord's moving in your heart there'll be some guys in the back or some folks in the back to pray with you if you want somebody to pray for you or just ask somebody we like to pray around here it's one of those things So let's do that together. Rock of ages, clever.